everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, this episode, we are taking another step back. We've been trying to cover the X-Men's earliest appearances and other titles as kind of, not filler episodes, but bonus episodes, I suppose is a better word. Uh, and we're going back to uh, Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, which is an iconic issue uh, from Stanley and uh, Steve Ditko. So I'm excited to talk about that today. I am thrilled to have uh, Kristen Chandler from X Reads back with us. Hey guys! Hey there! Hi! Thanks for having hey. us. So happy you're back. It's been a little while, uh, and uh, uh, we also have the incredible writer Julio Anta with us today. Hi, Julio. Hey everyone! Thanks for having me. So I'm going to have you each introduce yourselves briefly. Let's have you use your gender pronouns. Let us know what we might know you from or what you're working on. And then just kind of a silly intro uh, intro question today is who's one of your favorite villain teams from comic books of all time? And kind of a bonus question. Uh, can you think of any really ridiculous villain teams? And there's a, there's a lot out there. <laughs> uh, Julio, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Julio Anta. Um, uh, my pronouns are he, him, and I am a writer from, uh, originally from Miami, living in New York now. Um, uh, I think most people might know me from my image book titled Home. Uh, it started coming out last year, and uh, the first trade came out last November. Um, it's a book about a young boy who is separated from his mother at the U.S.-Mexico border, just as superhuman abilities begin to emerge in him. Um, so definitely a play on the superhero genre on uh, characters like the X-Men, because we do have this family of superhuman uh, characters in it, um, but obviously very grounded in reality. Um, and if I'm thinking about my favorite supervillain team, this one might not be that exciting, but I always love it when Batman's ro rogue gallery kind of comes together um, and, uh, you know, comes up against him. Um, as far as ridiculous super villain teams, I'm not. I'm not sure that I really have that, you know, bounty of knowledge to to pick one out. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what you all have to say. Did you ever watch the '60s Batman show? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I we had this VHS copy of like an hour long special from that show when I was growing up, and I must have watched it 40 times. And all of his villains team up, and it's the most nonsensical, ridiculous plot. There's <laughs> there's a moment where uh, Batman is in his bat copter, and he's climbing down a ladder, and a shark jumps up and gets his leg, and he goes, "Quick, Robin, toss me the anti-shark repellent." And they just happen to have some up in the glove box. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. I totally remember that. <laughs> it's oh weird. yeah, uh, this issue. This issue of Spider-Man feels a little like that old 60s special now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> uh, Chris, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. I'm Chris Riley. I am the co-host of X Reads podcast, and we recap uh, vintage issues uh, mostly from the 80s. Right now we're in the 90s. We're part of the AIPT podcast network. And uh, I am so happy and thrilled to be on this X-Men journey with my best friend Chandler. Uh, do you have any uh, favorite villain teams? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Spider-Man villain team is definitely top-notch. But, and and like you say, the Batman's rogue gallery uh, is pretty cool, too. Um, so, I you guys took my answers. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh, uh, Oh, go ahead. So, I'm so surprised nobody said the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants yet, but I, that's not my answer, but I was, mm, I was waiting for that. I just don't love them because, you know, I'm not a, a fan of Toad. 
I guess. <laughs> Toad, Toad makes me not love them. Uh, and then uh, Chandler, do you want to go? Sorry, my my internet just froze. Oh, you're good. <laughs> so yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Chandler Poling. I am on the other half of X Reads podcast. Uh, professionally, I am a publicist and have just been a long term fan of X Men and all sorts of nerdy culture. Uh, pronouns are he him. And my favorite villain team is the Acolytes of Magneto. I always thought they were so cool. Cargill, now known as Frenzy, was a big uh, you know, favorite of mine. Um, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but Unisone or Unisone. Um, she was she was really cool, of course, Fabian Cortez. And the ridiculous villain team that I want to bring up, and I don't know if they're considered villains or maybe they just have been misunderstood heroes, but Technet from Excalibur mm. have always been completely bonkers to me. So I just, you know, I don't, I don't quite know what to think of them because they're so weird. <laughs> Excellent choices. All uh, I am. Um, oh, I, I do now. Okay. First off, I forgot to say my pronouns are he, him. Uh, but now that I, I get to think about a little bit more, the Hellfire club is my favorite villain team. I, mm. I want to go visit them one day and just hang out at a party. In your underwear. In my, yes. <laughs> my saucy underwear. In your Celine cosplay. Yes. Uh, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I, uh, I think if I had to choose one favorite villain team, it'd be the Masters of Evil. There was a run in the 80s on Avengers where they just demolished the Avengers. And I was so astounded by it. It really, uh, it really shook me. Um, the Thunderbolts is another favorite, uh, especially the early stuff. Uh, ridiculous villain teams. There are a lot from the '60s and on in Marvel times. Uh, some of them are not X-Men related at all. But there's there's a group that fights the Avengers called the Triumvirate of Terror, uh, and one of the members' names is Thunderboot, which is all you need to know. <laughs> nice, I like that. Uh, the X-Men, the X-Men fight the Animen at one point, who are a bunch of uh, animal-themed villains like Frogman and Catman, and uh, they they have their origins in in, uh, in uh, Daredevil. Uh, my favorite one of all time is a Defenders run. They they make a lot of appearances over the years called the Headmen. Uh, there's a man, there's a human head on a gorilla body and there's a floating head and there's a chick that has like a, a red fishbowl head that grows arms. Like they're all just bizarre <laughs> villains. And when you, when you tell the right story, it's, a, it's incredible. Uh, <laughs> oh, I got another one. I got another one. My favorite ridiculous villain team is, do you remember when the golden girls were like the horticulture ladies? <laughs> yes. Come on. What was their, What was their official name? Horticulture. Oh, I loved them. They're hilarious. It's like the golden girls, but right. villains. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the Acolytes, Chandler. I feel like that's a team where all of the members have just a nugget of incredible story told, but so much more waiting to be told. Uh, I think that's a great team. And I don't think, I think everyone thinks they love the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but no one actually does because they never really do anything. <laughs> yeah, they never were good at their job. No matter who leads them, they're always terrible. But it's just, uh, Mystique is one of my top five characters. So I just have always liked Brotherhood of Evil Mutants was very close to uh, my my choice of favorite villain team. But it is Acolytes because I do, when I see them pop up or when I think about them, I am more excited about them than others. Now, we're going to spend the first part of our podcast today uh, uh, talking to uh, Julio about your work and the uh, the incredible work that you have and the voice that you have in comics that's occupied a very unique space. 
Um, I want to I want to share my journey of your work very briefly. Cool. So last year, uh, uh, Marvel put out well, Marvel for the last few years has been putting out a series of voices issues. And uh, Julio did a story in the recent uh, Comunidades issue about the uh, origin of the term Latinx. And I want to talk a little bit about that with you. Not mm-hmm. not the origin, the meaning or, or the definition. Yeah. Um, and then uh, after seeing your name in the credits, I, I, I always start looking at like, oh, where does this person come from and what else have they done? Uh, and I went and read your series Home at Image and was Lord, uh, I, I I was not expecting it. I knew nothing about it going in, and it was so intensely moving. Uh, it really affected me for a few days, um, and we're going to talk about that today too. Uh, so uh, after reading after reading home, uh, I immediately was like, "Hey, Julio, come on the podcast, please!" And I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here with us. Uh, so let's begin uh, today, Julio. Tell us a little bit about your path or your journey as a writer. Mm-hmm. Where do you Where do you come from? Uh, uh, where did you land currently? Like, how did you get where you are? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting because I. So I, I mentioned I'm from Miami originally. Um, Cuban and Colombian American background, um, growing up in this very, um, you know, Latino, Latinx uh, community and culture. Um, And then, uh, you know, I moved to New York eventually and um, always been a comic fan my entire life. Um, First, my my entry point was originally through um, like the Archie comics, uh, the Sonic license that they had. Um, I was a huge Sonic fan as a kid. I'll, I'll never forget my aunt. She um, she she offered to get me whatever video game system I wanted for my birthday one year, um, and I said a Sega Genesis. And she's like, "Are you sure you don't want a PlayStation?" Like this was already when the PlayStation was out. Um, and for me, like I just wanted to play Sonic. That's all I wanted to do. Um, and a big part of that was the the Sonic comics. Um, and uh, so that was really my entry point into comics. But really, it was manga after that and anime. Um, and going to an anime store in Miami is how I was really exposed to like North American superhero comics for the first time. Um, so that became a huge thing for me, kept following them, uh, you know, the rest of my life. And I think like most comic book readers at a certain point, I started, you know, realizing like, I think I can do, I think I can write these comics. You know, I definitely can't draw. I have no artistic ability in that sense. Um, but, you know, I, I think I can maybe, you know, write some of these, but I also had no idea how, you know, how you write comics, um, what does a script look like, um, or how does the industry work. Um, but eventually I, I got the idea for, for Home. Um, that was the first comic I ever, you know, started writing or really pursued. Um, and it was really based off of a lot of anger and, you know, um, just like my just being brokenhearted over what I was seeing happening at the border in the spring of 2018. Um, and, you know, before I even um, knew that I was going to be writing this comic, I kind of became obsessed with what was going on to the extent of like doing research and, you know, listening to podcasts and just diving in to try to understand what was going on and how we got to that point. Um, just as a person who was curious um, and eventually I had the idea for home and it really felt like this, um, you know, this positive outlet for all of this research that I'd already been doing and all this anger that I was feeling about what was going on. Um, and then I just dove into trying to figure out how to 
make this comic a reality. Um, so, you know, a lot of that was working on short comics initially and publishing them for free online um, and figuring out how to find artists. And it was kind of this like two to three year long journey of, you know, learning how the industry worked, creating a pitch, going to Comic-Con and cold pitching editors really unsuccessfully. Um, and then eventually um, being introduced to Eric Stevenson at Image, who, you know, really was really interested in the book and really, you know, kind of took us under his wing and, um, you know, helped us publish through Image and get the word out there. Uh, I have lots of comments. Uh, my first comic book love was Archie Comics, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles books. Uh, so back nice. when they were licensing those, and it's when those were canceled that I needed to find the X-Men. Uh, uh, well, that I not needed, but I found the X-Men. Uh, are you an X-Men fan? If so, uh, what was your first book, do you recall? Uh, I am an X-Men fan. Um, I'm a fan of the of the Hickman run right now or the, you know, the Dawn of X world that's going on right now. But my first X-Men comic was, and this probably uh, kind of shows like my age, but it was Ultimate X-Men. Um, mm -hmm. That was my introduction to, and that was also my introduction to Spider-Man comics. Um, it was really like, that was when I, I think I bought like a trade at Barnes Noble um, or Borders maybe. Um, but but yeah, so that was my intro. Um, so obviously a slightly different version of the X-Men. Um, but at the time, I, I thought that the art was like so much cooler and so much better than, you know, what I had seen um, when I was younger. And like my dad had a few comics, um, which were like, you know, I think like Silver Age comics and like the 90s era comics. So when I saw the art in Ultimate X-Men, I was super impressed. I thought it was super modern. Um, I look back at it now and don't really feel the same way anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, like reading reading the the book that we're going to talk about today um, really reminded me how much I love that Silver Age art. Um, but but yeah, so that was my intro to X Men, and then the movies. You right. know, um, so like 2000, 2001, I think is when the first uh, Fox movies started coming out. Um, those were big for me. The first, I think, the first three of them. Uh, I really followed closely. I kind of fell off when they started, you know, uh, like opening up the universe and everything. Um, but but yeah, so definitely an X-Men fan. Um, I mean, you might recognize in Home, we're kind of wrestling with some of these ideas in X-Men um, of like, what is the right way to use your powers? Is it to conceal them? Is it, do you have a responsibility to go out there um, and do something positive with it? So you know, for me, that comes from from those X-Men comics that I read also in the movies. Uh, Chandler and Chris, same question. You guys have probably said this on your podcast before, but what was your first X-Men book? Chris? Well, I'll go first. My first X-Men book happened to be a what if issue. And it was what if the juggernaut or Professor Xavier became the juggernaut. Mm. And it was wild. <laughs> it had every character you could possibly imagine inside of this comic book, just like the comic book we're about to read today. <laughs> and, but the trick was, it was an alternate universe. So they all had different code names and they all had different uniforms. It was very hard to keep track of, but an epic issue nonetheless. Uh, how about you, Chandler? Introduction. I was I've been struggling with this question because I definitely the X-Men the animated series got me really into X-Men, but I know that I had like piecemeal comics, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, etc. 
growing up. I think my first X-Men comic was an X-Men classic edition of 175. And it's the one where Madeline Pryor kind of presumes the image of Dark Phoenix. And she has brainwashed all the X-Men to take down Cyclops and Cyclops single-handedly you know, disables all of the X-Men as he's trying to figure out what's going on. And I just remember that issue really uh, extremely because I just remember thinking like Cyclops was not a character that I thought could take down everybody on the team. But but the writing was done so well that it showed that he's such a tactile person that I just was like, oh, wow, he's really he knows his teammates so well that he can disable them with no problem uh, if they are brainwashed by any means my first issue was x-force 27 when x-force fought milf uh, excuse me the mutant liberation front (laughs) so i i have a special love for tempo uh in the comics right now because she was one of my first characters and i was like "Ooh, there's potential here and then they never did anything with her now uh julio i work as a therapist in my day job and i am regularly sitting with people in their pain and their trauma and there are news stories that come along stuff in ukraine right now as an example that really seem to hit the human consciousness in a very heavy place. Almost like we end up in a spot where we're like, how are we as a species still capable of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and the stories you're referencing in in 2018 and before with uh, the border stuff, kids in cages, kids getting taken from their parents. Um, mm-hmm. There are certain stories I just, I feel like I can't contain them. Like I, it's it's so painful that it's hard to even go there. Yeah, uh, And I find myself kind of avoiding, but also dabbling. Like, I want to be informed. I want to vote. I want to donate. But I also feel really helpless. Uh, and yeah. Home, your series Home captured all of that for me. That uh, I, I had to sit with it. I had to face it. I had to be with this family, this mother who would do anything to get her kid back, this kid who's all alone. Uh, and then these, this just this incredible force of evil that they're facing against. Frankly, it's it's an X Men story in that way, right? Where we're mm-hmm. we're trying to hold on to our family and we're facing all this oppression. Uh, it's a beautifully beautifully told story. You told us a little bit about the story itself. Uh, uh, how did this story come to you? Uh, yeah. uh, how did you? assemble your team? And then third question is, how has it been received by people? Yeah, so, um, you know, for me, there was a there's a specific moment that I remember thinking to myself, um, you know, I have to, I, I had had the idea, but this was a moment that kind of crystallized it for me. Um, and it's a moment that I, I referenced in the book, um, in the third <laughs> issue. Um, I was listening to a podcast, I think it was, a, it was a New York Times podcast. Um, and it was, uh, the host was speaking to a mother who had her, her son taken away from her at the border. Um, and this was during the time when nobody knew where these kids were being sent. You know, they were being shipped across the country. Um, you know, maybe they were being separated in Arizona or in Texas. Um, and then they were being shipped all over the country without, you know, any plan for reunification down the line. Families were being, or the parents were being deported uh, into Mexico. Um, and this woman, with the help of an NGO, eventually tracked down where her child was. Um, and at first it hit me because I live in New York and she, her, she found out that her kid was in the Bronx. Um, so he had been shipped from Arizona to the Bronx um, with her having no idea. And without the help of this NGO, she would have had no idea. Um, and then they had a recording of their first phone call together between the mother and the, and the son. 
Um, and, you know, obviously very emotional. They're both crying. Um, and she's asking the child for forgiveness. Um, you know, forgive me for ever bringing you here. If I knew this was going to happen, I would have never done it. Um, you know, I wish that I could go back in time and never bring you here. Um, and it, it hit me really hard because I, you know, also at the time, I'm a new father. Um, my son is three years old. Um, I'm living in New York and I'm realizing that this kid went from Arizona to a few miles away from where I am right now. Um, and, you know, I think uh, a lot of parents and a lot of people in general like to talk about, you know, the lengths that they would go for their child, you know, how they would do anything for their kid. Um, but then somehow there's so little empathy when it comes to crossing borders, you know, to seek a better life for your child. You know, people like to think that, you know, I'd kill someone, I would do anything. But, you know, when it comes to, you know, migration and refugees, you know, it, the there's no empathy there. Um, so in that moment, um, you know, I kind of, it kind of crystallized for me that I had to find a way to tell this story in a way that, you know, comic book readers, specifically those in the direct market, um, would would be able to empathize with these characters because, you know, as a comic book fan like you guys, I never see these kinds of stories, you know, in comics and especially in, you know, mainstream direct market comics. Um, and especially since, you know, one of the original superhero stories and uh, one of the most popular superhero stories, Superman, you know, is this immigrant story. Um, and we don't, we, we, A, don't see that character treated that way very often anymore. And we don't hear any new versions of that story. You know, um, there isn't really an appetite for that. Um, so that was a moment for me that kind of crystallized it. And in the third issue, um, we have a moment like that between Juan and Mercedes, the, the young boy and his mother. Um, and I'm forgetting, what was your second question? Uh, how did you assemble the team that you worked with? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned briefly before that I had started doing some mini comics that I would post online for free. Um, and that was kind of my way of learning how to tell stories in the comics medium and learning how to collaborate with other creators and also putting things out there so that, you know, I can gauge how people react to these kinds of stories. Um, so along the way, I met um, the letterer, Hassan Otsmeinel Howe. He lettered all of, all of the mini comics I'd done in the past. Um, I figured out how to find artists, which for me was, um, you know, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, you know, looking up certain hashtags. Um, and then in the case of home, uh, Anna, the, the artist, I found her on Reddit, um, which I think is a pretty unique story for how like an image book would come together. Um, but it was a subreddit where uh, writers and artists can kind of po post um, like a short description of what they're working on and they can, you know, find each other and be connected. Um, so I posted kind of like a one sentence description of what home was going to be. Um, and I just posted it to see if any artists were interested. And Anna Weischek, who is on the book, is one of the people who reached out. Um, and that's how we started collaborating together for the first time. And then what's the reception been like to the book? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Like, as you can imagine, it's it's mixed. You know, um, the majority of the people that have actually read the book, you know, I'd say it's 99% positive. Um, you know, whether it's critics or readers, it's been almost, you know, universally positive reviews. Um, I've gotten so many messages from people, especially around the time that the single issues were coming out, 
of people just like telling me that they're that they're seeing their story in comics for the first time, which was really powerful for me um, because you know growing up I never saw any you know Latinx or Hispanic characters. Um, you know I think until Miles Morales came around, that was the first time that I saw any character of that background um, in comics. So like for me, I never had you know these positive characters to you know look look up to in comics. Um, cause mostly we were like some weird stereotyped villain. Um, but so that was really powerful for me to hear that, you know, that reception from people. Um, but, you know, as you can imagine, there is also, you know, a segment of the comics community that is very negative about telling any kind of story that revolves around, you know, characters that are not, you know, cis straight white people, sure. um, so, you know, I've gotten tons of messages, um, you know, when I, you know, when I released Home, when I did the Marvel Voices stories, um, you know, plenty of, you know, articles and YouTube videos, like there's all sorts of stuff out there, um, you know, with the negative reaction. But, you know, based off of what I've seen, like that's that's such a small fraction of the reactions that, that this book has gotten. Um, and honestly, as a comics fan that, you know, uh, was active on social media, you know, I knew that this element existed and I, you know, I expected it to a certain extent, um, especially from, you know, it's a book coming out from Image, you know, any book that Image puts out is going to get a certain amount of eyes on it. Um, so, so, you know, I've, I've felt really good about the, the reception. It's a, it's a very saturated market. Uh, there's a lot of books out there, but yours really stood out to me. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of treasured. Uh, this is not meant to put the two of you on blast, but Chandler and Chris, did you, have you guys seen Home before? Have you had a chance to take a look at it? I haven't, I haven't, but I, I wanted to just go back and just remark that you said that you were able to break into the comic book industry in two to three years. Yeah. Yeah, because that's remarkable. We just had Steve Orlando on our podcast and he took it took him 12 years to get his first big yeah. gig. So uh, that's you should really be proud of that. Be able to Thanks. maneuver through an industry and break in so quickly. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I and this is something that I hadn't uh, talked about yet, but, you know, I, I mentioned I grew up in Miami. Um, I kind of came up in like the hardcore and punk DIY music scene in Miami. Um, so, you know, one of the like playing in bands, I used to run a record label, like a big part of it was just like doing it yourself, figuring out like how these systems work and like how the industry works. Um, and then like just, you know, hustling and grinding it out and, you know, doing everything you can to just put yourself, you know, out there and your work out there. So for me, that's kind of how I viewed these mini comics that I put out. Um, and I think that's why when I was able to get this pitch in front of Image, um, you know, they were able to see that I wasn't somebody who had never done anything. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's that's a big part of trying to, like, break into comics, you know, those, like, really uncomfortable moments, you know, pitching a comic at a con, um, you know, and still, like, continuing on and pushing. Um, so I think, like, that's probably a big part of why it happened in such a short amount of time. And if every time people ask me, you know, how I got a book at Image or how I got published, like that's one of the big things that I talk about. Um, but but yeah, you know, it's definitely not lost on me that, you know, a lot of people it takes much longer. Um, but I think also, you know, I was trying to tell a very timely story. So I think that was a, a part of it, too. Yeah. 
<laughs> my kids will always ask me questions like who's the most powerful character like what's the worst thing that's ever happened and i i feel like uh when you're a writer or even a podcaster people like so how did you succeed like what was like give me that name like i want to make this it's always the yeah. biggest question <laughs> uh it, it it uh that 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 idea of of succeeding uh but i'm guessing that day you got the phone call from marvel felt like a pretty exciting day too uh tell us about uh getting getting the story in uh Communidatis. Yeah, well, it's it's funny, like what I just mentioned about like grinding and hustling and like putting yourself in, out there. Um, that's exactly how the Marvel Voices thing came about. So, um, you know, you mentioned that like for the last couple of years, there's been these Marvel Voices books. Um, and I think it was 2020 when they started. Um, and I think the first one they did was, you know, for Black creators, then they did, um, they did like a Woman of Marvel. They did a Pride version. Um, they did one for Indigenous creators. So I'm, you know, a comics fan, creator, you know, following the news, I'm seeing this. Um, and despite the fact that, you know, I feel like Latinx characters, uh, actors, writers, whatever, are usually left out of these kinds of conversations. Um, I started thinking, you know, like it, this pattern that I'm seeing with Marvel right now, I bet that there's gonna be a Marvel Voices, you know, for Latino and Latinx characters. Um, so I, I went into those issues and I saw who the editor was on all these Marvel Voices books. Um, and I sent her an email and I just said like, hey, um, if you're ever gonna do one of these Marvel Voices books for Latinx creators, um, I just wanna put myself out there. Here's a PDF of the home issues that have come out. Um, and, and then I think three or four months later, she emailed me back and said, yeah, you're right. We're gonna do it. Do you wanna be involved? So, um, you know, like that's, you know, kind of like in the spirit of what I was talking about, like that's that's how I ended up on that book. Did uh, you get to choose Miles? I was just curious. Did you get to choose I, your character? Yeah, so it's a funny story because, um, you know, no no shade to Marvel, DC. Um, there aren't a lot of major, you know, Latinx characters. You know, um, there's Miles, um, there's America Chavez, who's now presumably going to blow up now in a bigger way. Um, and there's a bunch of like B and C list characters. Um, so when I got that email uh, that said like, that was inviting me to the book, um, they gave me a list of characters, you know, all B, C list characters, Miles is not on that list. Um, and they said like, which one of these characters do you want to write? And that's when I was like, you know, in the back of my mind, I figured they already got some bigger creator and gave them Miles for this book. That's probably why it's not on the list, but I'm just going to ask anyway. Um, because for me, Miles and Anya Corazon, which is Spider-Girl, are like two of my favorite Marvel characters in general, um, but especially my favorite Latinx characters. So I told, I just asked them, like, is Miles available? I'd love to do like a two, like a team up story between Miles and Anya. Um, and then they just responded and said, yes. So, you know, it, I guess yeah, I did get to choose. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, just because yeah. obviously you said that he was influential to you and mm -hmm. didn't know if you got assigned him or you got to choose him but that's really cool that you got to write him yeah i think everyone got to choose but probably you know at a certain point like they don't want five mile stories or you know whatever so um so yeah i was i was really lucky that i got to to use him they're like you can use la bandara shark yeah. girl or el tigre those are your choices <laughs> yeah it was it was really like scraping the bottom of the barrel like going on like the marvel wiki and like looking up who they all are like people I'd never heard of, to be honest. 
Did you get to meet any of the other creators? Like, you know, Terry Bloss or anybody else? Yeah, I know point? Terry Bloss. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've, uh, we've done, um, we did like a virtual event uh, to promote the trade paperback of home. Um, and we've been, we've known each other for a couple of years, but yeah, he's a great guy. I know he did your podcast, right? Yeah. Well, yeah and Terry's, a, old, Terry's an old friend of mine, actually. We've known each other oh, for nice. a long time. We, we both grew up as uh, gay Mormons in Idaho. So we, we have a weird old connection. <laughs> you mentioned Salt Lake City. So I, I figured. <laughs> yeah, I, although I have a weird journey here. I, uh, I came out as gay and then moved to Salt Lake City as an ex-Mormon, which is mm-hmm. a, a, the backwards journey of many, but it's yeah. a good place. We like it here. <laughs> um, uh, you got to tell in your Comunidad a story. Uh, <laughs> you got to tell a, a story about two teenage superheroes explaining the term Latinx to their elders, which was a brilliant way of doing it. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the story you told and, and how it's been received. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, I think I maybe naively uh, thought like, oh, what a great um, educational uh, moment here. You know, um, this was, you know, ironically, the, the issue of the moral, the moral voices issue came out right when this big poll also came out that said, um, you know, only 2% of Latinos identify as Latinx. Um, and it became like this big flashpoint moment where everyone was talking about it. Every other day, it was like a trending topic on Twitter. Um, and in the midst of that, this issue came out um, where, uh, you know, like you said, Miles and Anya are explaining to uh, Miles's mother what the term meant because she kind of heard it before, but had no idea what it was. Um, and for me, like, I think uh, for like a lot of uh, like Latinx people of my generation, um, we are having the same conversation with our family. You know, we're like, maybe they're hearing it on the news or, you know, on a TV show or something. Um, and they've never heard this term before. And they're, you know, asking with very good intentions, like, what does this mean? Um, so I figured like, you know, why didn't I use these two Marvel characters that I love to, uh, you know, ex- have a great like open-hearted conversation between generations um, and explain the term, you know, and allow the older generation to ask honest questions um, about about the term, um, which is the questions that most people have when you know they learn about it. Um, you know, does it translate to Spanish? Um, why is it needed? You know, why isn't Latino or Latina good enough? Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so for me, I, I thought this would be like a great moment to like use these characters to explain it. Um, obviously it came out during this moment where there's this big conversation about it. Um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, I'm really proud of the work that I did on this book, um, and that I did with these Marvel characters. Um, but, you know, I think with, with a lot of these things, um, there's all sorts of weird, you know, I, I got the same, um, like bot Twitter response every time I posted it about it, you know, like during that time, if you tweeted the word Latinx, you'd get like 10 tweets saying the same exact thing. Um, And, uh, you know, clearly from bots and, uh, you know, it was a really weird moment for it to come out. Um, But like I said, I'm proud of the work that I did. I think, um, you know, I know that it's being used as a resource, like in certain like educational contexts, which, I'm proud of that. I think that's great. Um, but, but, you know, I think there's, there's these kinds of like controversial uh, topics and terms that a lot of times become like this larger culture war kind of thing. Um, so it's a little strange for, for the comic to come out during that time. I, um, I think 
Well, I try to take moments of gratitude in my life regularly, but I get to sit down here and just take stock for a moment. I'm sitting down with Chris and Chandler from X Reads, which is so fun. I've listened to you guys forever. Uh, uh, you guys do such a great job on your podcast and it's so much fun. And I get to sit down with writers who are educated and talented and passionate. And uh, just I'm just taking a gratitude moment there. This is really fun. Thank you all for being here today. Um, before we jump into our issue review, Kristen Chandler, do you have any other questions for Julio or Julio, anything you want to share about stuff you might have coming out? Yeah, I have, um, I have three upcoming books, um, that are coming out in 2023 and 2024. These are graphic novels in the book market. Um, so I have two YA graphic novels. Um, one is coming out, uh, next summer is called Frontera and one is coming out the following summer is called Second Generation Blues. Um, and then I also have an, an adult uh, graphic no nonfiction graphic novel called Si Se Puede coming out uh, next fall. Um, so, so, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, or Instagram or whatever, you can stay up to date on uh, when those go up for pre-order and more information. But those are those are the projects I can talk about right now. Fantastic. Uh, and then, uh, Chris and Chandler, did you have any other questions before we proceed? My question was... Uh, if you could write for any X-Men characters, who, what's your ideal team? Mm, my ideal team. Um, you know, I'm definitely putting, uh, I'm putting Sunspot on it. Um, you know, I'm putting, uh, I'm putting Wolverine, you know, short, angry, you know, Latinx energy. Like that's always been, you know, there's certain characters that like, you know, um, are not Latino, but I've always like, you know, seeing parts of our like, uh, you know, culture or like, you know, certain like archetypes in, he's definitely one of them. Um, you know, I also watched the X-Men animated show um, when I was a kid. So I feel like Storm, Beast, like, I feel like I'm describing like a very typical X-Men team. Um, but, but yeah, you know, um, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, um, but, you know, I'm not someone who's like, very knowledgeable on all the facets of like every single X-Men character. You know, I don't have like this encyclopedic knowledge of it. Um, but, but like I said, I am really enjoying, um, you know, the Dawn of X stuff that's happening now um, and how deep like the mythology that I wasn't aware of is being brought into the fold now. Um, but, but yeah. Um, I had a question for you and I wanted to know that, if home or one of your projects were to be given the Hollywood treatment and it became a movie, which mm -hmm. actors would you dream of working with in your project? Yeah. Um, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, these are conversations that are happening now. Um, but I would say, um, you know, it's someone, someone for me that like, I kind of grew up with, that's like slightly, you know, older than me. Um, but America Ferrera is someone that I've always like really looked up to in that space. Um, like I could totally see her um, being on Gladys in the book, uh, which is one of the characters. Um, you know, there's also, you know, there's there's newer shows now like Hentified that I love. Um, and there's actors there that I think would be great, um, you know, in the universe of home. Um, but but yeah, you know, the the tough thing is that there's such a like small pool of like, headlining actors and actresses, um, you know, in this community right now. Um, one of the things I talk about a lot, um, you know, in panels and in podcasts is that, is how how poor representation is for the Latinx community across the board in media. 
Um, and I think it's it's worse in comics than anywhere else. Um, but you know, in in film and TV, we're we make up like three percent of the on-screen actors and actresses. Where you know, in a country where we make up almost twenty percent of the population, um, so you know, it's it's tough because I think um, in any sort of adaptation, it would be a lot of people that none of us have ever seen on screen. You know, um, and like you know, there's no place in home for like J-Lo or like the real big A-listers, you know, um, but there's so few of them. So it's, it, that's one of the things that makes it tough when, you know, we have these conversations about like casting, you know, a Latinx comic book. Absolutely. Well, I think with that, let's jump into our issue review today. This has been a feeling feelings discussion <laughs> but uh but what another i'm gonna go uh reread home and then i just wanted to throw out uh on x-rates you guys are killing it every week but your interview with steve uh in one of your latest episodes was so much fun uh did you guys have a good time interviewing steve oh yeah he was a lot of fun he was really he was great energy he was uh he was he swore so much which was hilarious to me <laughs> that, that boston energy <laughs> that, that east coast energy no but he was he was a lot of fun and he had such a good time that he just basically invited himself back on for another episode so we're like yeah why not nice. <laughs> he uh he came on mine a little while back and we had a good time too. Two more lambdas, a jab. Uh, and I also wanted to toss out, I forgot before, uh, uh Enid Balam's pencils on your Communidades story were gorgeous, but just yeah, he's fantastic. So great, so great. Uh okay, so we're gonna jump back to 1960s for just a minute. Uh Stanley and Steve Ditko launch Spider-Man, which of course has revolutionized the comic book industry. He is the archetype character for like everything that came after. We get the bookish nerd who uh, struggles with a sense of responsibility. The first issue ends in tragedy when his uncle Ben dies. He's trying to take care of his very frail and very elderly Aunt May, who seemingly has grown younger over the years. But back in the 60s, <laughs> she was having a heart attack or a panic attack every other issue. Uh, Peter's struggling with bills. He's struggling with girls. He's struggling with everyone at school. And it seems like every issue, if you go back and read Spider-Man in the 60s, every issue he's fighting an older male supervillain. And there's like a there's like a father trend. He has no dad. His uncle's dead. His parents are dead. And every issue he's fighting some version of his dad. Now, in this annual, we get this crazy team up between six villains who are all kind of father figures to Peter in different ways and represent different things. And we're not going to do like a deep psychoanalysis, but he's like fighting my six dads <laughs> in this issue. And it's a little bit tragic. And it's and it's actually quite an epic story. Uh, it doesn't feel like a big deal now. But back then, the Marvel playground was all over the place. You had different lines, Fantastic Four and Daredevil and Thor and the Avengers, etc. And so we get a lot of like uh, little teeny appearances by lots of different heroes that kind of just pop up for a panel. You know, Iron Man flies by and then he's gone. But it's kind of this reminder back in the 60s that this is a shared universe, which is something we see more and more all the time in the, in the later books. Uh, but we didn't get that a lot back then. Maybe a team up once in a while. But to see all these heroes in one place was a lot of fun. Uh, so I asked each of you beforehand, this was your first time having read this issue. It's kind of nonsense, but when you consider what it represented at the time, it was a really big deal. You've got Spider-Man, who's just one hero, no powers, facing six villains who represent father archetypes in this crazy shared universe. And it's 72 pages, although we're only reviewing the first story, which was 41 pages. And we'll do that relatively quickly. Now, the X-Men do appear here. There is X-related content uh, in this. 
X-Men related, not X-rated, not the same thing <laughs> as we're reviewing this issue. Uh, but let's kind of start, if any of you have any thoughts on anything I just said, I'd love to hear it. And then let's do a little bit of analysis of the cover very quickly. What did you think of the cover of this book? Uh, and did you have any thoughts just on, on anything I tossed out there? Well, I don't know the his, a lot of Marvel history in the, of this era, but was this one of the first kind of annuals of its mm-hmm. time? Yes. I know Spider-Man is a, you know, an early title for them. Um, when know, they used amazing fantasy. Yeah. When they used the word annual or special back then, it was often reprinting other material that you didn't get to see in a lot of places. Uh, but this is a new story, like giant size, crazy, you know, king size book. Yeah. They, this was one of their first. Yeah, they mentioned a few times that it took them a year to make it, like the editor note, which I thought was really interesting. Um, is this also the first appearance of the Sinister Six as a team? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, this is the first Sinister Six, which is, you know, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants for Spider-Man. It's a, it's, it's the yeah. mainstay team that, that has gone through. Uh, there's been versions of the Sinister Six called the Sinister 66 and the Sinister 666. there's been been a lot of variations of this team over the years but yes this is their first one um thoughts on the cover initially for me you get the spider-man title in lots of different colors if you guys noticed that like every Mm -hmm. every letter in the logo is a different color which kind of makes the eye pop uh steve ditko draws spider-man in the way we've known him just kind of gymnast otherworldly kind of positions all the time and then we get these six nonsensical looking but iconic villains with very unique styles all kind of rushing at him as he's in a web. Sandman's limp sandy wrist is jarring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who's your who's your favorite villain of these six if you each had to choose one? Oh, probably for me, I would say Craven, the hunter. You know, I've always been uh, I thought he had the most interesting outfit of all the Spider-Man villains. You like a you like a daddy in some leather print with an open chest. Well, I wasn't going to say it like that, but yes, <laughs> mustache. You like a you like a villain who just stepped out of the Folsom Street. <laughs> yeah, with the leopard there. print and everything. He's got the um, he's got a, a it looks like a lion's mane for a vest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about I you? Always like, oh, sorry, oh. go ahead, Julio. I was just going to say, I've always liked Doc Ock, but looking at the cover now, I'm surprised how hidden Mysterio is in the corner. He's obviously covered by like his smoke, but also just by Spider-Man's body, which I thought was super interesting because uh, everyone else is pretty prominent and he's kind of hidden back there. And then Chandler, who's your favorite? Well, um, my first answer was going to be Electro because he always, I just thought he just looked really ridiculous. I mean, they all look ridiculous, but with the, that face mask was just, it's just too much. Like everybody is in pretty <laughs> normal garb or, you know, Mysterio's in his like, you know, theatrical garb, but his outfit always to me was so like just bonkers. Uh, and I, I do like electricity powers, you know, so I, I have always liked Electro. Electro wants attention. <laughs> I, I just have a weird thought like that there's a smoke cloud that is by Mysterio and I know it's from Mysterio but the first glance that I had at this it looked like it was coming from Spider-Man spread legs <laughs> so is that like some sort of new Spider-Man power a, a cloud a to confuse his enemies yes the spider <laughs> no. cloud spiders normally poop their webs his come out of his web shooters but he does have clearly spider fart powers here yes 
<laughs> uh, as we open the issue, and again, this is not meant to be a Spider-Man podcast, but I do read all Marvel stuff, and I used to work on the handbook, so I'm, I'm like a walking encyclopedia for this shit. Let me review the Spider-Villains here really quickly. We've got Craven the Hunter, who's Sergei Kravenov. He's an old Russian guy who is connected to riches and aristocracy, who uh, now is obsessed with hunting shit. That's kind of all you need to know. He, he always wants the next big prey. He's always obsessed with proving he's the better. We've got Dr. Octopus, who is my favorite, Otto Octavius, who is a scientist where some stuff went wrong, and he's got these metal arms now grafted to his back. He's also uh, the prototype or the, the hero in one of my favorite Marvel stories of all time, which is the uh, Superior Spider-Man run, where he takes over Spider-Man's body. It's one of my favorites ever. We've got Sandman, who is Flint Marco, who is a, an ex-con who gets caught in some radioactive sand <laughs> and turns into sand. That's all you need to know. Uh, you've got Mysterio, who is Quentin Beck. He is a failed kind of Hollywood director, special effects guy who now uses special effects to mess with people's minds, basically. You've got Electro, who is Max Dillon, who got caught by a lightning bolt on a on a like telephone wire and it gave him electric powers. Uh, and then uh, last but not least, you've got the Vulture, who is Adrian Toomes, who is an old, bitter man who has a flight suit. That's kind of all you need to know. Spider-Man has fought all of these guys uh, a bunch of times, as well as a bunch of other father figure villains like the Lizard and, and Chameleon and a bunch of others. Green Goblin being the biggest one, the biggest father archetype. Uh, so we're going to kind of review chunks of this issue quickly. I would love to slow it down and like take reaction spaces and talk about what you found funny or amusing or or, or inspiring. But we're gonna kind of we're gonna kind of review this book a little bit quickly and focus on the X many stuff and then just whatever you liked. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna run down really quickly. On our opening page, we get sexy shirtless Spider Man changing. Uh, he's a little surprised, like we just walked in on him as the villains. And uh, Aunt May and Betty Brant, who's his girlfriend back then. Uh, uh, are kind of starting everything off. Uh, Dr. Octopus is in prison. He's prisoner number 4756689, which is very specific. And his metal arms have been taken away, but he still can mentally control them. So he uses them to escape from prison. Uh, We see Peter Parker or Spider-Man teasing J. Jonah Jameson, yet another father type figure for him who runs the Daily Bugle. Uh, He steals the newspaper. Thor flies by for no reason. Dr. Octopus assembles the six villains for the Sinister Six. Uh, We jump back to Peter Parker uh, having a fight with Flash Thompson, who's the big bully at school that's always teasing him back then. Now, a lot of our long-term readers would know Flash Thompson eventually becomes Venom in the comic books or Agent Venom. Uh, He's a a favorite character for a lot of people. Um, We see Dr. Strange uh, in his astral form scare off the teens. So there's another appearance uh spider-man tries to jump on a guy but it turns out to be sandman in disguise and sandman escapes through the sewer grate peter parker rushes home and aunt may's crying over a photo of uncle ben who recently got murdered by the burglar and peter is wrestling with his guilt and sitting with all of this pain uh he swings around on a flagpole i love his uh i love his antics as he kind of just rushes through the city but he suddenly discovers that his self-doubt has resulted in the loss of his spider powers. He is without power for a period of time. Uh, He goes to the Fantastic Four for help. They can't do much for him. 
uh, well, they are they fly by basically is what happens. And when he runs home, uh, Aunt May is worried about him. Meanwhile, the supervillains who are forming the Sinister Six have decided they want to team up to take Spider-Man and very democratically, they decide to draw cards with numbers on them to see uh, who's going to fight him and in what order, because why fight him all at once when you could do it one at a time? We got 41 pages here to fill, folks. So let's take our time with these battles. Uh, and uh, Dr. Octopus has predetermined locations for each of them to fight the villains in. So there's a, there's a lot kind of happening all at once. There's a lot of words per page, a lot of panels per page. Um, Peter leaves for school. Uh, Aunt May sits there and wishes that teen boys would open up to their elders more often. Uh, Peter does not show up for school and the teens are worried the school calls Aunt May and she is worried and she goes to find Peter. Uh, Peter runs into Giant Man and the Wasp down at the docks. There's again, I'm just kind of recycling through all this stuff very quickly. There's a lot that takes place like on every page. It's kind of it's kind of dense. Uh, Aunt May goes to check on Betty Brandt to see if she knows where Peter is and Dr. Octopus convinces these two women to just kind of come with me. And they don't know that they're kidnapped, but they are. And there's kind of a cute relationship between he and Aunt May over the years. There's the infamous issue later where they almost get married. And it's even been touched on in the recent comics uh, where, where he kind of flirts with her a little bit. and <laughs> She's not having it because he's a supervillain. Um, so kind of just running through all of that very quickly. Let me ask you guys for some of your reactions or thoughts as we, as we cover a dense amount of pages in, in a brief period of time. What did you like about this section? What stood out to you? What amused you? So I mentioned this earlier, but I love this Silver Age art, but it, it, it's very difficult for me to get through these pages sometimes with the amount of, you mentioned how dense uh, the writing is and all the word balloons and captions. Um, sometimes it's really, it was really difficult for me at some points to uh, read through all this, but I love the art. The art to me is just amazing. It's an amazing time period for, for art. Um, and I love Ditko's art. Um, but you mentioned, I think you mentioned Thor already. You mentioned Dr. Strange, Giant Man. Uh, and the one. It, it, what's that? <laughs> And the Wasp and the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And, it you know, each one gets a little caption where it says, you know, read them monthly, you know, in whatever comic. Um, it's interesting how, you know, it's really an advertisement for all these these different characters. Yeah, I felt the same way because I because I think Spider-Man was the most high high selling comic book for them. Mm. And so I, I, I saw the marketing you know, mechanics behind that to, to get people that are fans of Spider-Man to read other Marvel heroes yeah. and hopefully get them to buy their books. Um, for me, I, I need to know how old really is Aunt May? Where is the, what is the timeline here? Because she is drawn as if she's about to die. She looks like Grandma Coco from that movie Coco. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like, and Peter is in high school. So, and he's the nephew, right? So somebody mm -hmm. explain this to me, please. So Much older sister to one of his parents. Do we know whose parent she's the sister of? So Uncle Ben, uh, Ben Parker, oh, right? His yes. little brother, Richard, is Peter's dad. Mm -hmm. uh, there is an age difference. In the early books, Aunt May's driven, drawn to be like 
I don't know, like 87 years old or something. And in the current book, she looks to be closer to like 65 or something. Uh, she's like much more vibrant and has a love life and does all this charity work. But yeah, in the old book, she's having a heart attack every other issue and there's medication. <laughs> it's also interesting to note, th there is a lot of word density in the early comics. But for the first couple of years of the Marvel books, the characters advanced quite a bit. Reed and Sue got married in the Fantastic Four and had a baby. Spider-Man graduated high school. The X-Men graduated from their class. Jean goes off to college. And then it's like everything slows down, like the sliding time scale kicks in and everything stretches out for years and years where, you know, 20 years pass in our lives and it's a year and a half in the characters' lives. Uh, but this is back in the days when there were a lot of changes. Peter's almost ready to graduate high school here, uh, mm -hmm. even though he's only had his powers a little while. Um, uh, yeah, I, as a reader, there's a lot of words per page. Also, we're 11 pages in and fucking nothing's happened. I mean, the villains are teaming <laughs> up. Uh, Peter's yeah. doubting himself a lot, which I think a lot of boys can relate to, right? Like, we're, we're, our target audience here is like white, white 60s teenage kids who, you know, have this aura of masculinity. And here's this kid who's doubting himself to the point where he's losing his yeah. powers. I do think there's something beautiful about that piece. Well, it's, it's the heaviness or the weight that Peter's always carrying. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because you say nothing's happened and you're right. Like we haven't gotten to like any big action. One of the things that I noticed is there's so many scenes so far and on every, you know, now modern comics, you know, um, you're not going to jump between scenes on one page, really. You know, like a scene is going to be multiple pages, but not, you know, you're not going to end a scene in the middle of a page. And here, you know, in some of these pages, we have three scenes within, um, you know, within one page. And we're like, in modern comics, you can say like, oh, maybe this issue is like an episode of a TV series. When I look at this whole issue, I see it almost like a movie with the amount of scenes that we have in this, you know? Um, so it's it's funny that you, you mentioned that because I just, when I see this, I see so many scenes in it. Um, but but yeah, it's still like no real action. Like we, we haven't really gotten anywhere despite all those scenes. They're also not making this super user-friendly. Like you have to be a fan of the regular Spider-Man book to, to get this here. There's a lot of characters weaving in and out and a lot of narratives. Mm -hmm. but if we sum it all up in like a few words or less, Spider-Man is doubting himself, lost his powers, and his aunt and girlfriend got kidnapped by some villains he doesn't know are after it. I mean, that's basically what's happened. Uh, Chandler, do you want to take over the next section? Tell us what happens on the on the next few pages. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Vulture shows up and he threatens J. Jonah Jameson, basically saying that he needs to print that uh, they're looking for Spider-Man and he needs to show up at this thing or else. Uh, and then they start calling around trying to find Spider-Man. Uh, they call the Fantastic Four. They're like, uh, yeah, we saw him playing around on a pole called the Avengers. He's like, I've never even met the guy. Uh, and then we get the X-Men. <laughs> We get our first appearance of the X-Men. Yes. My, favorite, my favorite slap is Professor Xavier, who's <laughs> the, the lines are Angel saying, look, a flaming message in the sky from the human torch. It's for Spider-Man. And Professor Xavier saying, ignore it. It does not concern us. Continue with your training program. And I just love <laughs> Professor being like, no, it's not mutant related. So therefore not important to us. And what the fuck is Beast doing in that panel? What is Beast doing? I think he's sliding. Oh, it's a roll. I think he's rolling across the floor. <laughs> I think he's trying to suck his own dick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
um yeah so spider-man's like okay well i don't have any powers but i gotta go do this so he gets his outfit on he goes to the first meeting point he faces off with electro and he discovers that aha i do have my powers i never actually lost them i just doubted myself and then he's able to overcome everything really quickly he is able to really take down electro quick fast and then we get our very first splash page as we get going on through these um, fights where we get Spider-Man. I love these splash pages, by the way. Whopping, yes. He, he oh, gives yeah. us They're so great. Right? They're beautiful, all of them, as we, as we go through the Sinister Six. But yeah, this is the first time we get a full page, just gorgeous piece by Steve Ditko. And he just takes down Electro by grounding himself with a wire to something so that electricity just passes through his body without pain. I, I don't know, but you know, it's spider powers. Peter Parker is a scientific genius. <laughs> I know. Uh, so Iron Man pops his head in. You can see him in his own issue of Iron Man. And then uh, more calls trying to find Spider Man. J. Jonah Jameson is, uh, he is expecting a visitor, so he doesn't want to be disturbed. Oh, he hasn't talked to the spider yet. Sorry, I was trying to get myself caught up of where <laughs> JJJ is at the, at the moment. Uh, Spider-Man arrives on his next scene, and he gets attacked by a leopard. And we hear a wee, which I assume is a whistle. <laughs> it's that. Yes. It just when you look at W H E, I hear like like as if you're on a roller coaster. Wee! <laughs> and now I'm the girl on the swing. Wee! If you guys know ragtime, if not, that made joke me into sense. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, we get Chris's favorite villain. Uh, oh yeah, Raven. He arrives on the scene. Uh, he has his leopard pals, and they try to take him down, but with one amazing spirally move, Spider-Man is able to subdue two leopards and Craven at the same time. Brilliant. And that is that. Any thoughts on the on, on that those two fights? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think the full page sections are gorgeous. Mm -hmm. uh, Spider-Man hefting one leopard above his head while shoving another one's down <laughs> and evading Craven uh, at the same time is amazing. Have you guys noticed already uh, how often supervillains and heroes show up in J. Jonah Jameson's window? Like, he's yeah. sitting in his office and someone's always <laughs> popping, popping, popping their head in like, hey! <laughs> it's <on the> window, <laughs> man! <laughs> if he just shut the shades, he'd have a lot less stress in his life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any other yeah, moments stand out to uh, to uh, uh, Chris and Hulu? I really like oh. that we have a little World's Fair uh, moment here where we see it in the background and he kind of leaps in there right before uh, his fight with Craven. Now, wait, did so New York hosted a World's Fair in the 60s or, or, or something like that? Yeah, at some point, and uh, that's still there, like that globe, and there's some there's some other things there on the grounds that are still there today. Um, but it's uh, it's in Queens. Oh, cool. I had no yeah. idea. There's a really great book called Devil in the White City about the World's Fair in Chicago. <laughs> and uh, so I've always been very interested about the, the American... the murderer? Yes. Okay. I, he I heard about that. It's a fantastic novel. Um, but yeah, World's Fair sounds so fascinating. I don't know why they don't happen anymore. They sounded like really, really interesting. And obviously we got yeah. the Eiffel Tower out of it. So let's keep, let's keep them up. <laughs> Uh, uh, I was, from, oh, Chris, go ahead. 
I was going to say for me, I am a big fan of characters who quip. You know, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as an example. She always had something to weedy to say before she drove a, a stake right through a vampire's heart. Well, Spider-Man is also quippy. As an, as an example, <laughs> he says to Craven, you never give up, do you? I bet you're still wearing a vote for Dewey button. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm all like, I had to like look it up. I guess that was a political guy and it was a campaign. I'm assuming vote for Dewey. And then he's swinging away from Craven and he says, see you around Craven. And by the way, if you got a few minutes to kill, why don't you see a good barber? Because <laughs> he's got a bad hair. Oh, Spider-Man, you tickle my funny bone. <laughs> oh, there was, I had to look something up. I was, oh, I was going to ask you guys this in my section. Flash Thompson, when he's bullying Peter, calls him a panty waist. And he had, which sounds like a terribly offensive term, right? Uh, I had to look it up. Do you guys, anyone know what a panty waist means in circa 1960? Oh, I feel it like sounds it must dirty. Be a way of saying that he's like really skinny. Uh, the, I, I thought maybe it meant like a boxing term, like a lightweight or something, but the official <laughs> definition is a feeble or cowardly person. Interesting. Sounds we, coded for anti homosexual. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> or, yeah. or, or like a little sexist I don't know should we reclaim that word in 2022 or anti-wasted <laughs> oh my god if I could be skinny again like before the pandemic <laughs> and be called a panty waist because I'm so slender hell yes I reclaim that word I now. <laughs> uh, Chris do you want to take the next section for us Oh, sure. Okay, so now that he's gone, Spider-Man has swung away from Craven. He's landing on a rooftop and doing somersaults because, uh-oh, on the rooftop there is a circle of fire. And guess who pops out? It is the Human Torch from the Fantastic Four. And it kind of scares Spider-Man, and he uh, slings his web at him. And they start going back and forth, uh, fireballs versus webs. But Human Torch is there to help him. And he's trying to say, whoa, buddy, wait, I am here to help. And Spider-Man's like, my bad, I'm sorry, I'm just a little bit on edge, I got all these people fighting me. So we go back to, he's all like, you know what, I don't need your help, I'm going to do things on my own, thanks anyway, goodbye. And also follow Fantastic Four, an issue number something something. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to Dr. Octopus, we are back inside of his um, very fancy condo apartment, penthouse whatever this is, but he also has like a secret lair where he is uh, tinkering on some new devices probably to mess with Spider-Man. But guess what? He's a very hospitable guy. He brings, he uses his arms to pour tea for Aunt May. He brings, uses one of his arms to bring scones or cookies for Betty Brant. Does, does Aunt May think that Betty Brant is a hooch? That she's a hoochie mama? Like she's I don't a, know about a hooch, but maybe maybe a little loose. A little Peter, loose. Peter is a teenager, and Betty is not a teenager, and May does not approve. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Aunt May is just having the time of her life because you know, to her, Doctor Octopus is a handsome gentleman, so soft spoken. Now, here's an exciting part. We and probably the most exciting part of the issue for me is we have Spider Man swinging. Uh, back into a room, and he's in a root, receives a root shock because guess who is there? It's the X Men, and uh, what ends up happening is they all start attacking him. It's we have Cyclops, we have Angel, and we have Beast. And you know, I'm sorry, but Spider Man's little webs are no match for Cyclops' beam. Give me a break. But luckily, 
Spider-Man is very flexible and agile, so he's able to dodge all that. And he hits the beast, but guess what? He's a robot. He's not even human. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and, you know, it's because he's not, uh, they're all robots, he can use all of his strength and power to take them down very easily. And he realizes that one of the walls that's in the room that's covered in sheet metal is not actually a wall. He he uses his senses to realize that there's something behind there and it must be the main villain that he's after. So he crashes through that wall with ease because it's not really there. And he discovers that it's Mysterio putting up illusions. And of course it's Mysterio because he has the ability to make those robots to mess with Spider-Man. So we get another big giant splash page with uh, uh Spider-Man crashing to the wall and him punching Mysterio. And I, I really, this splash page is probably the most beautiful one to me. I like it the best. Mm. It's, you know, very eye-catching. I could see this as a poster on my wall, for real. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of fisticuffs happening. We get the, the big giant uh, cloud of smoke, uh, which now we can't see what's going on in that smoke. Did it come from Spider-Man's butt though, or was it from Mysterio? We do we do get a butt shot of Spidey, like bending into the smoke. Yeah. <laughs> I do love the limbs coming out of the smoke. Oh, yeah. It reminds me of those old cartoons where you know they're fighting and they're wrestling, and you just see the limbs coming out of a big yeah, yeah. Of smoke. It's very mm-hmm. Looney Tunesy. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, something caught on fire. And what is that? It's the piece of paper with the the uh, directions on what to do next. But Spider-Man luckily uses his web shooter to uh, douse the flames and he uses his spider sense to make out what was written on that piece of paper before it disintegrates. And um, is that my section? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's great. Yeah, let me take over for a couple of pages quickly. We have uh, have back at the Daily Bugle, we have Jonah Jameson sees a spider outside his window and he talks to it. And he thinks, I, I bet this is I bet this is Spider-Man's friend, uh, which is adorable. Uh, we see Spider-Man fighting uh, Sandman. And this is the most uncomfortable splash page for me during their fight. Uh, what is Sandman is so weirdly drawn in this issue. He's scary sometimes, but he's so gloppy. I don't know. What did, what did you guys think of the splash page with him fighting Sandman? Like a day at the beach. Well, it, it looks like <laughs> it looks like Spider-Man is just kneeing him in the balls, right? Uh-huh. If we're like to figure out what body part is there. Yeah, he's almost like he's like wax man. I don't know. It's uh it's a weird panel. But he he of course uh he of course wins and he traps Sandman in a box. Uh we're back to the Daily Bugle and then we're back to Aunt May who still thinks Dr. Octopus is super charming. Uh, and then we get a Spider-Man vulture fight, like up on the rooftops. Vulture's flapping his wings and using like guns and shit. And uh, a- another just kind of gorgeous slash splash page of, <laughs> of Spider-Man landing on Vulture's back. And Vulture looks like he just shit his pants. I don't know what's happening to his face in this picture. He's just, he's in a bad place. Uh <laughs> It looks like a leapfrog. Is that what they're playing? (laughs) I also, I don't want to miss the spray. He sprays like an oily substance on the ground and then flaps his wings to make him fall off the building. It was lube, you guys. (laughs) It was lube. It was his KY (laughs) jelly lube. You know, he has it in his back pocket ready to go. 
Um, I probably would have bypassed this issue, even though we're we're doing the X-Men early stuff, except for the X-Men robots. Uh, Mysterio's X-Men robots, even though they're only around for a couple of pages, are a little bit iconic somehow. I think uh, the fact that he thought to include the X-Men and like make robots is adorable. He didn't make Iceman or Gene. Those, uh, those would have been more difficult perhaps to create in power sets, but he gave like robot angel, robot wings, and he gave Cyclops optic blast, like the whole thing. What did you guys think of the X-Men robots? It gave me early X-Men 100 vibes where they're also X-Men robots. So Mm -hmm. I just was like, which I think, I believe this is well before it. And uh, so it just kind of, it's the origin of X-Men bots. I had major flashbacks. We just covered the Phalanx Covenant and oh my god, it was so scary because they all turned out to be techno-organic beings, which are basically robots. And this is like the early day version of that <laughs> in my head. Well, and there's lots of arcade murder world X-Men robots over the years, right? But yeah, these are the originals. <laughs> yes, OG. Uh, Julio, do you want to walk us through the uh, the end of the issue? Yeah, so uh, what, what page did you leave off on? on the splash? Uh, 32, 33, yeah. Okay, cool. So, so yeah, on 33, uh, Spider-Man rides on the back of Vulture um, and then uh, leaves, uh, uh, wraps him up in web and leaves him there. Um, and then we, we finally get back to J. Jonah Jameson, um, who realizes that everybody has been covering Spider-Man's exploits throughout the day, the day except for him. Um, and then, uh, and then we, Spider-Man finally gets to, uh, Doc Ock's castle, which I didn't, I, I didn't know he had a, he had a castle until this issue, I guess. I don't know that he It does. might be the only time that he has In a castle. New York. Yeah. It was imported brick by brick, by the way. Yes. Like, the comic. <laughs> yeah. Count Nefaria did that too. Maybe he got this on Airbnb from Count Nefaria. <laughs> well, you know, in, um, in Central Park, we have a castle. So, you know, it could be it could be the the castle in Central Park. That's actually um, Dracula's yeah. castle. It's <laughs> where Dracula hangs out when he visits New York as as uh, whatever as documented. <laughs> <laughs> so, Spider-Man gets in into the castle um and he starts uh stalking Doc Ock. They of course get into a fight. Uh I think Spider-Man tries to get the jump on him because he doesn't have the arms, but he doesn't realize that he can control the arms telepathically. Um, so they break into a fight. Um, eventually they end up in this big tank that Doc Ock has, which I thought was, was really funny and zany. Um, and uh, Spider-Man is, uh, again, we get another splash page that I thought was a really great one also of Spider-Man um, just in the water wrestling with Doc Ock's arms. Um, of course, Spider-Man can't breathe underwater, so he has to go up periodically and get a, get a breath. Um, and but while doing that, he realized that he can use all of his web fluid uh, to capture uh, Doc Ock's arms in the tank, um, and then I guess just leave him there, uh, uh, captured in all of the the web fluid. This has to be. This has to be Dr. Octopus's most humiliating defeat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a way to go, man. <laughs> Especially in front of Aunt May, who obviously has the hots for him this whole time. <laughs> um, so yeah, then, then uh, Spider-Man finds Betty and Aunt May um, and uh, rescues them. I think Aunt May is still confused, right? She's like, 
well, we have to say goodbye to that nice man who, who treated us so nicely. Uh, and then, uh, and then he races to get back home before, uh, before Aunt May, uh, arrives there and realizes that he's gone. Some really weird drawings of her face on page 40. Yeah. Where it's just like very tall and narrow. Um, I just, I thought that was bizarre. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, all the villains, the sinister sticks end up in jail, um, and uh, and she gets mad at him for at Peter for using all this slang apparently that uh, you know is uh, <laughs> is not uh, is not kosher for her. And then we get one last image of the Human Torch poking his head through Jameson's window, which is still open, and he's like, "God damn it, get out of here! I've got ulcers." <laughs> <laughs> my, my ulcers have ulcers my favorite part of uh of the stanley writing is just his little quippy humor stuff throughout the way mm-hmm. but ultimately we have a teenage boy with a lot of responsibility and guilt saving two ladies because you know you have to be rescued in the 60s if you're a woman uh by fighting a whole team full of angry old men that's kind of what it boils down to uh, now this is not an X-Men comic, but we do see the X-Men here, which is why I wanted to cover. We're trying to just get a comprehensive understanding of the 60s. What did you guys think of this issue? Did you have a single like kind of standout favorite moment? Were there things you loved or hated? I loved how uh, Aunt, I, we discovered that Aunt May almost has a heart attack, but it's not really a heart attack. It's just because she's in shock. She missed the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> <laughs> it's little it's little things like that in the writing that just tickle my funny bone, I swear. <laughs> so it's really, for me, it's it's fun to revisit the, the olden days where if you say ever loving, that's considered a swear word. <laughs> swear lingo. <laughs> I had a lot of fun reading this, uh, even in the parts that were difficult for me to keep moving on because of all of the dialogue. Um, but I thought it was so interesting that he, because um, I think we get the explanation of why he lost his powers later. They kind of just like magically come back midway through. And then he later he realizes that it was, what was it? Because he was like, because he was upset about Uncle Ben and everything. Is that why? Yeah, like. Yeah, he just has this guilt so his powers go away for a while. He, he, he doubted himself and he lost his light. I think we've all had those moments in our life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was genuinely scared. Like, I was thinking in that moment of how terrifying it must be to be up in the rooftop swinging around and all of a sudden you can't and you don't, like, stick to your yeah. walls anymore. I like, when, like, the whole action of him getting from the flagpole onto the the side of the building and then into some apartment, I guess, or somehow getting himself out of the, the skyscraper. I, 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 there was genuine fear. I was like, wow, that, that, that would be terrifying to be somebody like Spider-Man and then not be able to use your power. And I was feeling a lot of fear and claustrophobia in some of these epic villain fights, like being trapped in a box with Sandman, being trapped in a fishbowl with Dr. Octopus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're fighting uh fighting vulture who has wings in the air right like yeah they all all of the villains had these natural spaces wasn't electro in an electric i don't know like uh like power a, plant yeah power plant. yeah, yeah they all had the, they all had the advantage and he won fuck yeah yeah he had to fight on their turf and he overcame them all um, I won't make Julio answer this question, although you can if you want to since I know you're straight but uh for for Chris and Chandler <laughs> fuck Mary kill vulture. <laughs> Sandman and Dr. Octopus. Oh, God. I chose the okay. worst three. <laughs> okay. 
So okay. it's fuck Mary I got Kill. Mine. Okay, I got so mine. so I would I would fuck Sandman because you know he probably could manipulate the sand anywhere on your body <laughs> to feel amazing. Get up in all those crevices, you know, in any form it wants, and then. Um, I would probably marry Dr. Octopus because he lives in swanky castles and he seems to be very rich and intelligent. And I, I want to be served tea and cookies with those big giant metal arms. Um, and then I would kill the vulture because he, he honestly, he scares me. (laughs) Um, Same answer. (laughs) Literally. I was going to say the same for me too. (laughs) It wasn't as tough as I thought. (laughs) I immediately thought about Doc Ock's castle. I was like, of course you married Doc Ock. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course. Oh, hands down. One. I couldn't all put Craven in the down. mix because we would have all just chosen Craven. Uh, <laughs> Peter Parker is a character, I'll comment briefly, that doesn't ever seem to really change. He's decades, of, well, decades in publication history, but he still wrestles with the same guilt complexes. He advances and then falls and advances and then falls. Uh, one of the reasons I love Mild Morales as a shout out back to Julio's work is we have a new character. We can wrestle with the mythos in different ways. He's not trapped in this same cycle over and over and over again. Uh, but I do love me some 60s Spider-Man. Um, as we are concluding today, what an honor to just sit and nerd out with all of you for 90 minutes. This has been a, a, a lot of fun. Uh, Julio, what an honor to get to know you. And Chandler and Chris, I'm a big fan of your podcast and your work. It's fun to see you guys again. Uh, let me know where people can find you guys online and what we have to look forward to. Uh, I am finding myself in incredible company on Grey Malkin Lane regularly. Last week, we got to talk to Ron Mars. It's uh, Julio today, which is wonderful. Uh, and we have the writer Jay Faber coming on uh, for our next review, which is going to be fantastic. We get to go back and talk about his old Generation X run and uh, and uh, nerd out over comics together, which is going to be a blast. Uh, what's coming up on X Reads next? And where can people find you guys online? Sure. You can find us uh, well, on social media. We're at X Reads Podcast. That's the letter X, R-E-A-D-S Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. And our podcast can be found on just on any p- podcast platform that you listen to, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. And coming yeah, up... And- we have a lot of exciting things coming up, like Stephen Gordon, who is the uh, character designer for X-Men Evolution, and he worked on Wolverine and the X-Men as well. Uh, we also have Eric and Julia Leewald, the kind of showrunners of X-Men, the animated series uh, coming on. We have uh, Steve Fox, the writer of the new X-Men 92 that's coming out and, and others. I can't even think of them all. It's all, they're I, all there's very a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we're doing a, the X-Men fandom panel at WonderCon coming up. Super excited about that. You guys have created such a unique, safe space. Uh, it is so much fun uh, every time we listen. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Uh, Julio, where can people find you? And and uh, and you got a chance to talk a little bit about what's coming up mm-hmm. earlier uh, in the next few years. Uh, but uh, but give us an extra plug for a home here at the end. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, you can find me uh, on Twitter, Instagram, uh, at Julio Anta. Um, you can go on my website, julioanta.com, um, to read all those mini comics I mentioned earlier. Um, and there's also links on how you can purchase Home. Um, and uh, and yeah, like I mentioned before, you know, Home was a really personal story for me. Um, and one that was really just like this labor of love between me and the rest of the creative team on it. Um, so please pick it up, get it from a local bookstore, your local comic shop, um, wherever, you know, wherever is available to you. 
I mean, I don't say this to all my guests, but we've never had a better looking group. How much fun to uh, to sit with all of you guys. This is this has been a blast. Uh, we will see you guys back here next time on uh, Grey Mountain Night.